Hi, and welcome to session number three of the Silmarillion Seminar. The class decided that each episode needs a snappy title, which they will choose. And so I've been told that today's episode is titled, The Sharpest Tool in the Valinorian Shed. In it, we discuss chapter one of the Quintus Silmarillion, of the beginning of days. You may remember that session two was the one that ended in mid-sentence, so near the beginning of session three, I go back and try to tie up a few loose ends. That, I believe, is how we ended up in the Valinorian Shed. Okay. So, Matt, let's start with you. Okay, yeah, I've been I've been wondering about this for a long time. If uh, it's possible that uh, Iluvatar kind of foresaw what was going to happen with Melkor, or if, even if he didn't, if once things started happening, if he kind of let things go to just to kind of see where it was going and what might come of it. Yeah, well, I mean, of course, you know, one of the things I want to say immediately is going back to our discussion um, in the Aino Lindale about um, Iluvatar smiling when the Discord begins, right? I mean, you get the sense there, you know, from the even before we see any of the actual narrative from later on, uh, that uh, Iluvatar definitely kind of knows knows where this is going. I mean, what we're led to understand about about Iluvatar, I mean, there's no question um, that he is supposed to be, you know, uh, have the same kind of properties as the Judeo-Christian God. That's made pretty clear in many places. Uh, therefore, you know, uh, I think we are supposed to understand him as being omniscient and that therefore he will know uh, what Melkor is doing. But the question of, so in some ways, the question of why does Iluvatar permit Melkor to do what he does is essentially just a way of basically re-asking the question of why does God permit free will at all? Um, and that seems to be one of the things, actually, I think in the Anuindale especially, where um, where Tolkien is really kind of foregrounding that question, showing both the free will of the of the Ainur in the making of the music in the first place, and of course Melkor's choice uh, to abuse that free will in the way that he does. And Iluvatar's response to it is both to permit it to happen, that is to, you know, he doesn't revoke his free will when he abuses it, but yet he also does not merely totally step aside from his own authority either. He doesn't just say, well, see, you know, you can basically, you can do whatever you want and I don't care. He tells him, you can't, you're you're not going to succeed. If you try to abuse your will, it won't work. You're not going to be able to thwart what my will, even if you attempt to. And in fact, your attempts themselves are only going to going to end up serving me and, and, and the glory of my plan more. Uh, but yet, nevertheless, you are still exerting your free will. So basically, when we see this stuff happening, um, there are going to be lots of times, you know, you can sort of see this on different levels. There will be lots of times in Middle-earth when the people in Middle-earth seem to there are going to be lots of times in Middle Earth when when people seem to like feel that the Valar are, are like ignoring them and oblivious and have no idea and are not not paying attention and are not involved and have feel abandoned by the Valar and that's 
not really true. Usually that is a false perception on their part. Um, however, there's also sort of another level even more, more profoundly where it may seem with all of the struggles of the Valar against Melkor and there will be moments when the Valar themselves, you know, as the story unfolds, seem kind of clueless and hopeless and in, in, in kind of bumbling around and not knowing what they're doing. And one may be tempted to say on the broader level the same kind of thing, that Iluvatar himself has kind of abandoned things and is not paying attention and doesn't know what's going on. But that's not true either. Um, so I think it's it's important to kind of keep that in mind. Tolkien does a good job of kind of sort of putting that off to the side. We sort of begin at this really wide level, looking at the sort of cosmic interactions of Iluvatar and, and, and the Ainur and the music and the vision and everything else. And then we kind of narrow down and we're looking at the you know, the struggles between the Valar and Melkor here. And then we're going to move over into Middle-earth later on, and we're going to be really focusing on the men and the elves. And sort of each time we kind of zoom in, it's easy to sort of forget about. We're not going to get constant reminders of what's going on on those higher levels, but they're all still there. So, and I think that that's something to, uh, that's something to, to sort of keep in mind. Um, and, you know, one other kind of twist to it. Melkor himself and his followers are always going to try to capitalize on this and say, oh, yeah, Iluvatar, he's not paying attention. Yeah, I, you know, I'm, uh, I'm the one who really knows what's going on and nobody else does. But, of course, that's not really, in fact, true. Um, <clears throat> okay, let's see. Uh, let's see. Um, sorry, I'm trying to, trying to sort this out here. Um, I think the next topic was Chris. I think you were, you had the next question. You wanted to talk about uh, the Valar's attack or lack of attack on Atumno. All right. Um, this kind of goes in some, something you were mentioning. Um, I know we you just spoke about, and I think we've spoken before about from the people in Middle Earth, their perspective. It doesn't look like uh, the Valar are doing anything. And you know, we just talked about you just talked about that. That's not really true. But I, I am curious to what your thoughts or what anybody else's thoughts are on. Um, I guess it's on page 41, 40 and 41, where they're talking about uh, they're anticipating the coming of the children of Iluvatar, and uh, Yavanna and Arome are willing to uh, go over and you know, let's go and take care of this. We're going to have to do it. Take care of Melkor because we're going to have to do it before the firstborn come anyway, and they delay and delay and delay. And I was just uh, was curious as to what your thoughts on that would be and, and why they didn't do what they knew they needed to do. At least that's what, from, the, from my perspective, might be a good question to ask. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's one of the things that it really points to is that or it's, it's, it's sort of a reminder that the Valar are, are very far from omniscient. They don't know, they don't know everything by a long shot. And one of the chief things that they don't know about is the children of Iluvatar. Remember the emphasis earlier on that the children of Iluvatar only, they're the only parts of creation which have nothing to do with the, with the song, with the music of the Ainur. Um, the Ainur did not conceive them. They were conceived only by Iluvatar himself. And so the, 
Valar are more ignorant about the children of Iluvatar than they are about anything else. So they don't know. They they, they have they they have been given this vision. They know something of the children and kind of vaguely about them. They know that they're coming. They're waiting for the birth of the firstborn, but they don't know when the firstborn are coming. They don't know where they're going to be. So they, what they say is, you know, they realize, all right, when we when we war with Melkor. Um, you know, this has like global consequences. You know, we're going to, we're going to spill seas and topple mountain ranges when this happens. Um, so they're waiting. They, it says that they're waiting because they don't want to, they don't want to basically, they, they sound like they're afraid of killing all the children. Like, you know, they would hate to find out that the children were, you know, had come to life in this one valley that then got flooded during their war with Melkor. So they're waiting to find out. And this is what we'll see when the elves are, when the elves do awake, that's when they're going to go to war. Uh, because they know where the children are, so they can kind of like, you know, protect them and then take care of take care of Melkor. So that's the reason. Yeah, I think that... you're right. I think uh, they. I do recall looking ahead that they do something to protect or to shield the the yeah. uh, the firstborn when they're actually having their big battle. Just, yeah, just occurred to me. Yeah, and you know, it's again. I, th- I think that the, the the two things to take from it are, again, first of all, to remember that they they certainly don't know everything that's going to happen, um, or even everything that is happening uh, in other parts of the world, um, and secondly, to recall, remember the conversation we had about. Um, you know, again, this was again back in the Ainulindale about the whole like, uh, uh, you know phenomenal cosmic powers thing um the the whole discussion of like why they should live on this tiny little planet um arda when they're these these huge beings um you know them fighting with melkor you know the earth is not just the stage on which the fight between them would happen when they worry about um you know huge upheavals as a result of their fight. It's not just like, you know, a Wild West bar fight where lots of stools and tables are going to get broken, you know, when they fight, you know, the stools and tables being, you know, mountains and, and, and whatever. That's not what they're worrying about, that basically these kinds of upheavals in some sense are the fight between them. I mean, they are like the the, the whole formation of Arda itself is part of the conflict. So, um, you know, when 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 Einor war on Arda, it's a pretty big deal, and they know it's a pretty big deal. We never see that happening without massive, uh, without massive th- uh, 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 sort of geological consequences uh, in it's Arda. It's a wonder that they don't shatter the world when they do end up uh, going toe to toe in that right. first battle. Right. Well, they do. I mean, we see, we hear about it happening on several different occasions, and when it does, um, it you know. So there's the first time when when Melkor first descends and they fight with him, and Tolkis joins them, and 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 Melkor flees. Um, and that time, you know, there was you know they, they he messed everything up, and they had to start again. And then they didn't want to fight him again right away because they didn't want this to happen before they knew where the elves were. When they fight, when they, when the second time that they really go to war with him, when they after the birth of the elves, there are going to be huge, massive upheavals that we're not told all that much about them. The third time we see it happen at the end of the Quintus Silmarillion is when the whole continent of Beleriand sinks beneath the sea. So, you know, that this 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 kind of thing always happens, uh, you know, when there's a rumble among the Valar. So, um, so yeah, that 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 seems to be that seems to be their concern, and it's it's a good reminder both of the of the limitations of the Valar and also of of the majesty of the 
the Valar. They're afraid of of uh, of, of yeah of just like smashing whole continents like bugs. So um, okay, good, great, great, good question. Let's Thanks. see. No problem, Dave. You wanted to uh, to uh, piggyback onto that. Yes, I would like to. Um, Laura and I were wondering uh, it, it, why it seems like it seems like they have only two options: either war with Melkor or complete withdrawal and basically just abandoning Middle Earth. And we were wondering, I mean, is that really their only two options? Like, couldn't they have done something um, to stay involved in Middle Earth? It, it seems, even though I, I think what you just said makes sense that they didn't want to risk the destruction that a war, all-out war with Melkor would take, but it still seems exceedingly odd that they just basically, well, see you later, Middle Earth. I mean, didn't they worry that maybe Melkor might stumble upon the sleeping place of the children? Or, I don't know, it, it seems weird that they would just completely disappear and abandon it. Yeah, I agree. And I don't think that they do. I mean, we know that there are some of the uh, of the Valar who never do abandon Middle Earth. Both were told about, of course, Yavanna and Arome always still traveling around in Middle-earth. And of course, it is emphasized that Olmo is always in touch with everything that's going on, uh, you know, down in his uh, deep, deep undersea uh, uh, dwelling. So, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of still sort of keeping their finger on the pulse. But, you know, one of the things, one of the things that I wonder here as again, I think back to a different conversation we had about the Ainulindale, and I think it might be it might sort of come into play here again, and that is the limitations of the capabilities of the elves who are mediating this story, the elves who are telling the story as it was told to them by the Valar. The the limitations of them even really understanding what's going on with the Valar and what the Valar are doing. Um, you know, so this is the elves' version. The Valar told them what happened, and this is the elves retelling that story. And, you know, I got to think that just as with the music of the Ainur, there are a lot of things that the elves are not really capable of understanding about the nature of the Valar and how they interact with uh, with Melkor, what what a war with him would actually really look like. So again, as I said, I don't think it's just a question of, like, hey, let's go out and, you know, I mean, we, we get these images of, you know, of, of, of Tolkas as the wrestler and that he's going to, you know, punch Melkor in the face. But I got to think, you know, in in reality, it's going to be a little bit more complicated than that, um, especially since neither of them really have bodies. So, um, so yeah, I, I think that here we're dealing again with sort of metaphor. I mean, all of this stuff, um, all of these stories, especially this chapter, um, this first chapter of the Quinta, it's pretty vague. I mean, the action is rarely described in much detail, you still get the sense that we're we're getting a really broad brush. I almost want to say a really crude version, though perhaps that's not quite fair to say, or not not, not exactly the right word. Um, simple, anyway, simplistic uh, view of 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 what actually happened here. Um, and I think it, this is kind of like they're being told what they need to know. And what they need to know is there was war between the Valar and Melkor. The struggle between the Valar and Melkor is why 
there is beauty in the world and yet the beauty is everywhere marred. It is why, you know, there is this discord, why there are these tempests and colds and heats and, uh, and why there's this suffering and everything else, why the world isn't perfect and doesn't work the way that we, you know, why we live in Valinor and are separated from middle earth. You know, all of those questions are kind of answered by what the elves have been told in our retelling here. But uh, it's not, I, but again, it's not really a full literal story. When we get to the actual narration of what the, um, of, of what the elves themselves did in the later Silmarillion, the stories get a lot more detailed because there we cease to be dealing in metaphor and we begin to be, uh, we begin to be working with actual narrative. Um, Mike, you wanted to, uh, you wanted to pile onto that? Um, I just wanted to say, in regard to the delay in attacking, it seems to me that they're, they're, there's, the Valor are neither doing nothing nor are they attacking. What what I think they're doing is a third thing that, that Tolkien gives us a little clue to. They're stockpiling light and water. And there are two passages where he mentions gathering and hoarding water and light in wells and in vats. And I think that's just a really interesting maybe clue as to this third option that, you know, they were sort of recharging. And I don't know if later on in the story, all of that stockpiled water and light is deployed, but that, that to me was, as I was rereading this and listening to the discussion might be a third sort of approach that the Valar were taking at this, at this time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, it's true. We do see them. We do see them doing other things. I mean, uh, it might be tempting to say, oh, you know, this, uh, they're going over to Valinor and building Valinor, um, but, you know, collecting the light, collecting the, um, you know, and just sort of building their, you know, their, their, their houses and lands over there might seem like a kind of a separatist movement, you know, like, okay, we're going to, you know, we're, we're, we're moving away from middle earth and we're going to retire to, uh, you know, to this place across the sea and, uh, whatever, we'll just leave the rest of it to, to Melkor. Uh, but I don't, I, I, I think, Mike, that seems plausible to me that we can see this as part of a kind of overall strategy. We can see this as, I mean, I think that the establishment of Valinor is itself a pretty major kind of counterattack against Melkor. Remember, one of the things that he does just by his presence, when he returns, they know he's there because the shadow begins to creep across the land and, you know, these monsters start creeping up and all this stuff starts happening. So they can just see by the evidence that he's there. Well, they are also exerting an influence, but they're exerting, of course, a positive influence for good and for beauty and for order. Um, So basically they are they they make this stronghold this stronghold of beauty and light and i think that yeah i mean that uh that that image of them hoarding the light from uh Laurelin and Telperion into great vats uh is a is a wonderful image um and uh, i think that's a really it works as a really nice kind of metaphor for what the one of the things that the Valar appear to be doing uh, during during this time. So, yeah, I can see that. And I do think, I mean, this, and Mike, you also remind me that I didn't exactly um, answer Dave's question, though I kind of beat around it. Um, but the answer is yes, I, I'm pretty convinced that they're doing a bunch of things that we don't see. Um, again, we're not told. I think even the elves themselves were like on a need-to-know basis here. Um, 
you know, that essentially the Valar would have said to them, look, there are lots of things going on here that you can't perceive and can't understand. Yes, we're doing things, but, uh, but no, we're not marching to war. No, we're not, we're not doing the big confrontation right now, but they were setting things up. So yeah, Mike, I mean, I think that you can see them, them anticipating the whole story to come, uh, and, and, and preparing for that. Um, so uh, let's see. I think uh, Matt, you wanted to to add. On. I don't know if you wanted to go back. I know you wanted to add on to your previous uh, question that we moved away from. Uh, um, so either way, go for it. Well, no, but you actually touched on what I was I was going to bring up, which is the whole fact that uh, Melkor's interfering has made uh, the world more interesting and more diverse, and the whole. The whole section in Ainu Lindelay about um, how because of him we have snow and frost and rain and, and things like that, and it just makes the world more more diverse and uh, you know complicated, yes, but uh, more interesting. Yeah, and I, 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 that's definitely true. Um, now I, I always want to be cautious there is that I think that if you take that, uh, it's not even to its logical extreme, you just take that one step further um, and say, so evil is a great thing. Uh, you know, evil is awesome. Without evil, the world would have been boring and horrible. Um, so Melkor is a hero. I, no, Melkor is not a hero and evil is not good. But uh, you know, the key thing in Manway will say this explicitly later on um, that According to Iluvatar's plan, the way that Iluvatar's plan works is that evil will be good to have been. It won't be good, but it will be good to have been. Um, just as the most triumphant notes of Melkor's discord are woven into the most uh, into the most powerful and beautiful parts of the third theme of the of. Iluvatar and the music. So, um, so yes, it is true that, and I think that that uh, that discussion between Iluvatar and Olmo um, at the end of the Ainu Lindaway is a really great, as you point out, really great illustration of that. That he says, you know, uh, Melkor, far from destroying um, water. Melkor has made it more beautiful than I had ever imagined. I had never envisioned the snowflake, um, and I had never heard anything like the rainfall. Um, so now more music and more beauty than, than I would have thought of by myself has, has come about. And that Tolkien does seem to be suggesting that's, that is, in fact, the consequence of evil. Um, well, I mean, that, I think that might also be considered an unintended consequence that would frustrate Melkor because um, he certainly didn't want things to turn out the other way, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And I think that you can sort of hear that kind of tone uh, in uh, in both in Iluvatar's smile at the Discord and in his comment to Melkor right afterwards, mighty is mighty are the Ainur and mighty among them is Melkor, but you shall see. Um, you know, there's, I don't want to call Iluvatar smug there, but there's, you know, there's like, he is aware of the fact that, um, you know, this is, this is, this is just not going to work out the way that he intended. Um, good. Well, I think, um, actually, Mike, you had had a question earlier on that you asked. Um, you were next, uh, uh, you're next in the queue. You had a question about the Little Kingdom? A reference to uh, 
the little kingdom, and I was wondering, what is the little kingdom, and is there a big kingdom? <laughs> yeah, Where, where's that passage exactly again? I'm, 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 I'm not finding it right off. It's like the third sentence of the chapter. Oh, right, one, about Tolkien, right? Moment. Yes. Yes, yes, that's right. Yes, hearing that there was battle in the little kingdom. Yeah, yeah. Well, the little kingdom is Arda, and the big kingdom is everything else. <laughs> I mean, again, that's sort of a reminder. Remember that uh, kind of cosmically speaking, Arda is this one little speck um, in the whole wide uh, expanse of Ea. Um, and so the the Valar, when the Valar descended, um, they... Are, they are bound to Arda and they are limited within it. So there is a, um, there is very much a sort of a move, a, a humbling move of them. They're going to sort of humble themselves to become the caretakers of Arda out of love because they love it and they want to build it and care for it. Um, so they, you know, sort of descend from the great and mighty regions where they where they dwelt, and they descend into this little kingdom. Um, it's one of the things, by the way, that makes Melkor's own descent in triumph and majesty and awesome, dominating power kind of funny, because of course he's limiting himself too, though he himself thinks of it as aggrandizement. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, so, so this, so Tolkis, I love Tolkis, you know, and he's, uh, so he, he's heard that, uh, you know, that there's, uh, there's a tussle going on down in the little kingdom and he wants a piece of the action. So he decides to come and join in. Um, so yeah, I, 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 that's, yeah. So I think the, the big kingdom is literally everything else there. Um, Actually, Jack, I don't know if you uh you sent me an email about Tolkas that was very thoughtful after our after our previous discussion uh in which I was uh, uh sort of suggesting that Tolkas was uh was not the sharpest tool in the Valinorian shed. Um and I don't know, Jack, if you would want a a, a chance to uh to, to, to give your defense of Tolkas. Yeah, sure. Um, very well may be that he's not the the brightest uh, of the Valar, but I just think there might be another explanation. Um, um, it just mentions how in the present he is, how he's not concerned about the future or the past. And it almost brings to mind, uh, you know, a Buddha-like nature. And not suggesting that, but, you know, he was the last one to come down into um, the little kingdom. And I think he may have been more in touch with, you know, being in the timeless halls, just being present, just being, you know, in that state. And maybe he just held on to that more. And he's just in a different state of being than the other Valar who are there longer and maybe more in tune with with the world. And it's not a lack of intelligence because um, we tend to think of him as a big Hercules type guy. But maybe he was just more in the present, more buddha-like almost yeah you know it's that's i mean i do think that that's possible i mean i'm not sure you were kind of hesitant about the connection with buddha and i sort of agree with your hesitations um though it certainly is an interesting counterpoint uh that is the buddha image is, a, is an interesting counterpoint uh to the hercules image which i agree as much more you know as we tend to picture tolkas i think but i think that you are very right to go back to the text and point out that the in the context of the comment about his being of no avail as a counselor which expression I always find so funny, um, you know, that, that's 
The earlier part of that sentence says he has little heed for either the past or the future and is of no avail as a counselor. Um, well, he's no—he's of no avail as a counselor because he's not—he's not a deep thinker, which doesn't necessarily mean that he's stupid. That's just not what he is concerned about. He's concerned about the present. Um, it's not that he thinks about nothing; it's just that he thinks about the present, and that's no bad thing, nor sign of a lack of intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, he—he—he uh, he is, uh, you know, in many ways, to live in the now uh, is a very—I mean, that's a. Uh, that's kind of almost ideal, actually. So I think that that's, that's a really important reminder. Um, and he is, he's of no avail as a counselor, but is a hearty friend. And I think it's also important. We see this emphasis with Tolkis as well. Um, not just that he heard that there was battle and he thought that would be fun and came down to join in the battle sort of recreationally. But also he is someone who did not come down originally just out of love for Arda and the, and as a desire to become one of the caretakers of Arda, you know, he came down also to help, you know, and to join himself and support the Valar who were down here. Um, he is a hearty friend and we see him acting as a hearty friend. Um, and he's, he, you know, sort of joins them in the present, but he's not so worried about, you know, these uh, deliberations about the future. Uh, Chris, you wanted to to contribute there? Real quick question, hopefully. Um, I'm thinking back to the Ainur Lindelay when they're, the, the Valar or the Ainur are looking at Ea and they go down into it. And it just, from our discussion here just over the last few minutes, are the Valar and the Meyer that go with them are they bound just to Arda or just all of Ea and they've just chosen to live in the region of Arda? That's a really good question, and I'm not 100% sure of the answer. It seems like Arda I itself. I assumed it was Ea because they, they talk about Varda kindling the stars and in what you, I've assumed was Ea at large. But, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and though... You know, that's actually kind of a subtopic itself. That is the actual nature of the stars and how they're described. Um, Of course, as we'll see, the sun and moon as well are, you know, sort of conceived within this mythology very differently. So I think that if we envision, you know, Ea as, you know, like the galaxy or something in the modern astronomical sense, and Arda is this one planet that they go and form and shape and and look at. I think that that's uh, probably a little bit misleading based on what we see about Arda kindling the stars and the creation of the sun and moon and stuff. So, so I think we have to be a little bit careful there. Um, that was, by the way, one of the things that Tolkien was pretty uncomfortable with. He was um, – he – I think that he, he really liked – from a mythology standpoint, the idea of this, you know, the, the creation of the sun and moon and, and sort of the, 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 the paths of the sun and moon, we'll, we'll see more about the sun and moon later on, but he was didn't uncomfortable he, with it. Didn't he wish later on that he had not had to transform the world from a, a mythical one to a more scientific one for lack of a better word? Yeah. Well, he just, I think that he felt that he, it, it seemed to be sort of, aware of the fact that the astronomy of Arda sort of strained 
uh, science, <laughs> any kind of actual science, much more than any other aspect of Arda did, and he was uncomfortable with that. Yeah. Um, so he was actually going to kind of scrap the whole thing. He, he, he. There were several different versions of sort of the the cosmology and the astronomy of Arda that he that he kind of worked on. Um, but anyway, all that is as much as to say we don't necessarily have to assume that when uh, when or rather, I don't think we should be assuming that when Varda is going to kindle the stars, that what she's doing is actually, you know, distributing these, you know, super planetary gaseous, uh, uh, you know, bodies at interstellar distances and stuff. I, it's it, this seems to be the stars in this way seem to be conceived of as a as an essentially terrestrial phenomenon. Um, it seems to be actually something about Arda, not just Ea in general, but Arda the planet. Uh, so, again, that's not I, that's not really clear. But I don't think it, I don't think it is really clear in the texts at all, actually. Um, but okay, but hang on, I want to retrace my thoughts now. That was a side issue. The stars thing was a side issue. We were talking about what? Where were we right before that? Totally forgetting. They've been talking about the water, you know. I've kind of lost where we were at. Yeah, here. I lost the thread too. Oh well. <laughs> um, yeah, see, we were talking about that's right. Uh, Tolkas coming. We were talking about Tolkas, and then we got onto this somehow. Oh yeah, was it Arda or Aya that they were restricted to? That's what it was. Okay, okay. So. So I'm not sure that Varda, therefore, gives us a clear counter example or, or counter evidence that it's Ea and not Arda specifically. Um, it certainly is Ea that they appear to see in the vision and want to um, and want to to go see and want to and and, and want to, to to enter into. Um, but it does seem to be Arda that they're actually connected to. So, well, but again, you know, it's possible that that's another like need to, need to know situation because, uh, you know, goodness knows if, if they're doing other things outside of Arda, nobody who's telling this story would know about it. So, right. Just, uh, speculation for us. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, I think, let's see, Dave, you had a question about Iluvatar's gift to men and uh, their gift of freedom. I was going to, I was going to say you could skip that until later because I'm, I, I didn't, it's kind of jumping over a whole bunch of stuff to the end of the uh, chapter. So okay. if you want to skip it till later, that I'm fine with that. Although I did have a side question that I wanted to ask. Um uh, related to what you were just talking about, when you mentioned um, uh, you mentioned the all the sort of various different drafts and versions of the creation story and the um, beginning of the days that he wrote, and I was wondering to what extent, when we read the later versions of the Silmarillion, should we keep in mind his early intention that this be a uh, a history of our world? Um, and then kind of related to that, I was – one thing I noticed was that some of the material in this chapter is kind of redundant and, and it sometimes sort of – I don't know, not contradictory, but 
um, not not totally compatible with stuff in the Valaquenta. I can't think of an example, but it, it basically it just seemed reminiscent to me of the two creation stories in Genesis that they're right. They're, it, it, this chapter's retelling much of the stuff from the previous chapter in a slightly different way. I mean, it's got different stuff too, but it seems to be retelling. It's reintroducing us to the Valar, which I think is interesting. Yeah, I mean, okay, when. So, first of all, of course, we have to remember that the Silmarillion, as it's published, is a bunch of stuff that was put together by Christopher. Um, you know, I mean, it was published for four years after Tolkien's death. So, um, this is not the story as it's you know we, it, we certainly can't look at the published Silmarillion as sort of the final polished thing that Tolkien you know worked up to after revising a hundred times um so so we have to be careful about that um but at the same time it's also not quite fair to go back and look at the original drafts i mean the book of lost tales stuff as i mentioned before was written in like the teens and 20s most of it um so we can't really go back and say, well, here's what he intended there. And so that stuff, you know, must obviously kind of be true in some sense for the later stuff because his, his ideas kind of changed a lot over the course of the next 50 years. But, um, uh, certainly to, to answer your specific question about the, the placement of this as a prehistory of our world, as a broad idea that never changed. Um, he always was dealing with, Middle Earth as ultimately our world and kind of uh, the Middle Earth that we're in in the Lord of the Rings as basically kind of pre even our even like the sort of vaguely European part of the world. Um, but he the, the one thing that he had abandoned and that I think that we should permit him to abandon because he really seemed to have um he really seemed to have uh, uh, uh decidedly abandoned it was trying to make specific geographic connections i mean he had um you know he had like particular towns in england um which were based on the sites of some you know some locations that were in the stories that he was telling um and that he he did definitely abandon that. So I think that, uh, that, 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 that's the part that we should leave, but the general conception of this being our world in prehistory is something that was, that had never gone away. So that is definitely something that we're supposed to retain. Um, yeah, yeah. Let's see. I think, uh, Oh, Dave, go ahead. That's the that's the reason that he had the sort of discomfort with the um ast the astronomical uh um framework that he had set up. He was he was uncomfortable with the the fact that he had the you know the way he was setting up the sun and the moon and the light and all that and because if this is supposed to be a prehistory of our world uh and the, and if we're to read this as a literal um description of the physical um, existence of Arda, then obviously there's some problems there because you know we think the sun is a ball of gas burning in deep in space and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, I th what I would go back to is the language that Tolkien uses in On Fairy Stories about willing suspension of disbelief. Um, on the one hand, he liked you know all of his 
original conceptions, all of his, you know, his his stories about the you know the sun and the moon and stars and things, they're very, they they're a lot like the mythologies of other of of yeah, traditional mythological stories like Greek mythology and Norse mythology often contain you know explanations about the sun and who's the sun you know it's like the chariot of the sun being driven across the sky in Greek mythology you you always get that kind of thing and so he liked that kind of mythic spirit of that kind of explanation but he's willing he he recognizes the fact that if he is going to ask us in some sense to accept the fact that this is a, you know that this is sort of a fictional prehistory of our world um you know he he emphasized in on fairy stories that if you're telling a good story if you're being a good sub creator if you're creating a good secondary world then people should be able to imagine if to imaginatively enter into it without any really serious obstacles. If somebody has to willingly suspend their disbelief, then the art is failing. And I think that basically I, that that's, that's how I would put um, the, that issue with the discomfort with the astronomy, because he would sort of recognize that's going to demand a lot of suspension of disbelief uh, of people to actually envision a flat world that is made round and the, 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 you know, sun being driven across the sky like that. Um, so I think that that was the, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, that's, I guess I hadn't really thought about that, that from the standpoint that the, you know, I mean, there's certain elements that you might put in there that makes it harder for the story to draw the person in and requires a more active commitment. And then that's bad storytelling. You might say, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 he, again, I think if you come at it from a certain perspective, as in like, like you come to Greek mythology or like you come to Norse mythology, it's fine. I mean, it, as, as a mythological story, it works. But if you're actually, but it can be an obstacle, more of an obstacle, I think, than he really, than he really wanted. Um, it's not that he felt, he did, it's not that he didn't like it artistically. He felt that it was, silly or ridiculous. I mean, he used some pretty slighting language to talk about his, his myth of the sun and moon. Um, uh, because the NS, I think it was for him a, uh, suspension of, of belief issue. Um, let's see. I know that Elizabeth had a, uh, uh, had mentioned a simple question before a pronunciation question, which I forgot to ask about pronunciation before, uh, Utomno. Otomno is uh, is how that would be is how that would be pronounced. Uh, anybody else have any quick pronunciation questions? If you do, uh, um, type them out and uh, and uh, Mac will keep track of them for me, and then I'll I'll I'll, I'll r rattle them off later on, or at least attempt to. Okay, I know several of you have been uh, been waiting here for a while, so I'll let's see. We'll move on to. Someone else here. Um, Elizabeth, why don't I go ahead? I'll give you a, a chance. You wanted to talk about the physical shape of the Earth? Uh, yes. 
Thank you. Actually, what we were just talking about, it's a good segue into my question because um, I've always had a hard time visualizing, I guess, the, the physical characteristics of Arda at this point, um, just kind of gleaning a little bit from the text, especially at the point where the Valar leave um, Middle-earth and go to, um, I guess, Amun, the land of Amun, and it talks about how it's the westernmost of all lands on the borders of the world, and it overlooks the outer sea which beyond which are the walls of night and um i guess i kind of have the the visualization of that as a, a a flat world with the two continents middle earth and valinor kind of floating in this large sea kind of in a snow globe <laughs> is what comes to mind and i'm sure that that's not what he's going for but i can't really get an idea of how this earth is supposed to look <laughs> right no I, I i understand uh in fact let me uh let me make that harder uh there's this awesome illustration that tolkien made um and this was again back way back in the book of lost tales um uh parts of things where he actually he drew a map of the world and he made it look like a viking longship uh, I, no, no joke. He even drew like a mast and sails, and you've got Tenequitil, the holy mountain, on one end up by the prow, and then this there's this other uh, mountain that he named Aronto, which is in the far east. Uh, and it actually like it's to the point where in in his commentary, Christopher Tolkien actually speculates whether his dad was joking, like whether his dad started drawing this map and then thought, hey, this kind of looks like a ship. Let me doodle and draw like a mast and sails on it, too, and a little like dragon prow up on the front. Um, but anyway, it's so he actually but he did in a couple of occasions allude to the world ship. Um, so there seems possibly to be some validity to it. Um in general, what I would say, it seems that the maps, what, there were a couple of sketch maps that he had done at this time, and they're really sketchy. Um, the world does appear to be flat. Um, there are really only the two continents that are really talked about, though again here, you get the sense, you get the sense here, as we still have the sense, even in the Lord of the Rings, that the whole time we are... Uh, you know, concerned with the stories in in the Silmarillion, it, it's only taking part in a small portion of the world, and that there's a big, wide world out there in which presumably there are also other stories going on too that we just never hear about. Again, we get this throughout the Lord of the Rings too. I mean, we the the, the maps. You remember that line about uh, about Frodo and the Shire looking at maps and wondering what lay beyond their edges because there's usually just white spaces outside the Shire in Shire maps. Well, you know, Middle Earth maps aren't that much better when you get when you I mean, what's east of Mordor? You know, what's east of the Sea of Rune? Well, white space is what tends to be out there. Um, but we're told there are vast continents out there. And that, in fact, the part of Middle-earth that is mapped uh, and traveled around in uh, during the Lord of the Rings is only a very small part of it. Of course, in uh, in in the Silmarillion, we're getting just a, you know, a part of that continent, a different part of that continent, of course, that isn't there anymore in the Third Age. Um, it, it, can, I, can I ask yeah, a question yeah, real quick? Yeah. The, um, 
is am I correct in understanding that the actual like space part where the stars are does is he meaning that to be like kind of like an ocean? Yeah, that's a good question. Kind of, kind of. I mean, um, he actually describes this kind of outer sea, um, and we hear about we hear about the void, which is outside. Um, but even where, even where, uh, like, remember Nienna's halls are west of west, and they're on the edge, uh, looking. What's the? Uh, let me see if I can find the 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 language there. Because there you get she lives sort of on the coast, as it were, um, looking outwards. Let's see, where is Nienna? Here she is on page 28. Um, her halls are west of west upon the borders of the world. Um, the windows of her house look outward from the walls of the world. Um, so that's that's not really necessarily a sea, uh, a sea image itself, um, though there was in the original cosmology in the Book of Lost Tales cosmology this idea of of ve of the, the 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 great sea, the outer seas. Uh, at one point, Olmo speaks almost slightingly of the oceans themselves. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and it says that those are just little, you know, like puddles, uh, you know, water that is upheld by rocks compared to the huge outer, outer ocean, which is not even really water in the sense in which we understand it. So there is a sense, I think, Elizabeth, in which he does kind of conceive it as in some ways at least comparable, uh, to water. Though again, I, I would again come back to here just saying that, a lot of this stuff, the stuff which is beyond the actual experience of the storytellers, in this case, the elves, is all likely to be expressed in those kinds of metaphorical terms. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's so. In, in other words, I think it's compared to seas. I think it's compared to water. Um, but I don't think we're supposed to actually under, uh, uh, sort of uh, suspected of actually being water. But uh, um but yeah, no, that's that's a good question. I think that if if you're feeling kind of vague about the actual geography at this point, certainly at this point, I think that there are good reasons for that. Um, and I think, again, even thinking about it within the chronology of the story, we're going to be told that when they do go after Melkor again, after the elves are awakened, they're going to go after Melkor. And when they do, there's going to be great upheaval. So the the only thing that's going to be really still the same is Valinor, which is protected. So I, that's one of the reasons I think why we get a good deal more geographical description of Valinor here. Um, and much less of middle earth because the middle earth that is actually present at the time of, of, of a lot of this story is frankly, just not even there in that way anymore later on. Um, but also it was also clearly pretty vague in Tolkien's head. Um, he did a lot less with maps in the earlier stages than he did certainly in the Lord of the Rings stage. Of course, there he had Christopher helping him with the maps. Um, that was one of the things that Christopher did a lot of was drawing the maps. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it is a little bit sort of vague at this point. Um, let's see, Joe, you wanted to talk about, um, about the trees and the lamps, I think. Um, <clears throat> yes. Uh, well, one thing I just thought it was kind of interesting 
that um the lamps are slightly similar to the trees and it seems like time almost could have started with the lamps but it's not as detailed as it is with the trees i guess and then um also that uh two of the most beautiful things that were ever created the trees were brought forth uh kind of by tears and grief um from Nienna. and i think that really relates to um every Louvatar saying that melkor would help bring forth things even more beautiful than he thought possible or imaginable um through his evil actions yeah i i, I one of the one of the coolest things I think that happens in this whole chapter. Um, well, almost anything Nienna does is cool. She, she doesn't come up very often, but whenever she does, I think it's really profound in exactly the way that you're describing Joe. Um, and the fact that she, it, Yovana's song is the song that awakens the trees. The two trees are the great work of Yovana, but it's Nienna who gets the assist. You know, there are others, you, you know, you, you, one might imagine several others. I mean, if you just had to guess, okay, obviously there are these great trees. It's going to be Yovana. But you'd think maybe Yovana, with the help of Varda, maybe, because the, all of the light involved and light is primarily associated with her. You know, you wouldn't necessarily guess Nienna. Nienna is the one who's going to help bring forth the trees, but she does. Uh, you know, she prepares the way for them. She waters the hill with her tears before they spring up. Um, we will see her water that same hill with her tears again later on, and we should remember this moment when we get to that point. Um, but yeah, we can see the uh, the 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 deep significance, the deep roots that all of the bright and beautiful things in Tolkien have, uh, have in sorrow, uh, and in hardship. And I think of the, the comment that is made about Olmo too, um, when he talks about, let's see, the fountains, I'm probably not going to be able to find the right line where it talks about this, the source of all of the, of the bright, happy fountains being in the, yes, there we go. Um, it's page 40. Uh, in the deep places, he, this is Olmo, gives thought to music great and terrible, and the echo of that music runs through all the veins of the world in sorrow and in joy. For if joyful is the fountain that rises in the sun, its springs are in the wells of sorrow unfathomed at the foundations of the earth. Uh, the idea that there are that there are wells of sorrow unfathomed at the foundation of the earth, um, that's exactly one of the things that Nienna is there to remind us of. Right. Um, and, uh, so, so yeah, her, her connection with the trees there, I think is really, is really interesting and really important. Yeah. Yeah. I just, it's interesting. You don't hear about her a whole lot, but she's really just tied into so many different things inside the Silmarillion. And it, it's just, uh, you know, it's interesting when you finally realize, wow, she's, she's really involved. Yeah, no, it's true. Um, Liz Bateman, my thesis student of a couple of years ago, was really interested in Nienna. She was the one who was uh, uh, doing her thesis on suffering and, and sadness. So she paid a lot of attention to Nienna, had a whole chapter on her. And she counted, and I think, I'm trying to remember Liz's count. I think she counted eight total references. She doesn't come up very often. Um, eight or nine times total in the whole Silmarillion by name. And uh, uh, so... Every time it happens, uh, it's it's interesting, and almost every time it's uh, it seems really significant. Um, so yeah, I definitely agree with that. Mike, you wanted to uh, to to contribute there. The discussion here about the two trees. I just want to make a comment about Tolkien and uh, 
gardening, I just I thought it was striking that up to this point, all we had were green things, mosses, grasses, ferns, nothing had flowered. And then finally, we get the, the first flowering when the trees arrive. And I just thought that was really neat. And it, flowers sort of play a, a role in all of Tolkien's writings. And I, I hadn't really gotten that the first time I read the chapter. I reread it, and I caught that reference to the fact that there were only green things for a long time. And for a while, that was enough for the valor. They were they marveled at the greenness, but finally the flowers come. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that that's true. I mean, with flowers... Um... You know, the, the, I even think of the way that Tolkien tends to use that word, uh, flower, um, both as a noun, as sort of an abstract noun, and also as a verb. You know, he talks about things flowering or like in the flower of youth and things like that. It's, 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 it's always a very important concept. So we can see this here. So this is the final, the final flowering of the full beauty of, uh, of Valinor. And we see the reverse of that, where we see plants and flowers withering or decaying, and the, the imagery is really powerful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so no, I, I think that you're very right to 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 pick up on that. It's one of the ways that that Tolkien clearly signals, okay, this is this is the beginning, this is the golden age of Valinor, um, and I think that that's why. Well, that's one of the reasons why this is where we have the start of time. Um, the start of the count of time, of course, time has been going on, but this is this is the, this is when we're going to keep track of time. And in a sense, I think it's because they know that the Valar know this isn't going to last like this. I mean, they've seen enough of the vision; they they remember the music well enough to know that this golden age that is now coming into flower is not always going to stay like this. Um, and so there's there's this sense in which. Uh, you know, starting the count of time at the flowering of the trees uh, is because the, you know, the Valar are, are, you know, counting the days of their, uh, uh, of their bliss, of the, uh, of this golden age, you know, because they know it isn't going to last. There's a Robert Frost poem with a line that says, nothing gold can stay. And that's exactly what I think is, you're, you're talking about here. Exactly. Yeah. And they know it's, you know, not just a, you know, a sort of general, truth you know yeah they know this is not this is not going to last so let's let's really savor this and let's keep track <laughs> let's keep track of how many flowerings of laurel and intelperion we got you know uh and i think that that's and 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 let's and let's hoard their light in vats you know let's 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 keep it around yeah it's uh it's a very it's a very powerful image i mean the, tolkien does a marvelous job of showing again another very traditional mythological idea that, you know, this idea of a golden age. Um, and, uh, that he, he, I think he evokes it really powerfully with the two trees. I know John, you had, uh, wanted to talk about the two lamps as well, I think. Yes. Um, I was just curious whether there was a connection between the, um, the two towers of the lamps and later the two towers of Mordegoth. The thing Gorodri. I was wondering if there was uh, some input on that that you had. Well, I mean, to some extent, the um, the the towers that he throws up. Well, Thangorodrim is going to be sort of later on. Utomno, the first stronghold uh, that he builds in the far, far north. Um, that's stronghold number one, and it's far larger and greater. Um, 
the primary uh, place where he's going to be holed up at the with the mountains of the Thangorage room above it, and and uh, Angband being the name of his fortress. Um, we're going to learn that Angband is just a uh, like a satellite stronghold of Utomno, um, but it's where he's going to settle down later on. Um, so when he throws up the towers of Thangorodrum, there is a, like an act of defiance there. I don't know if it's exactly um, if it's exactly mockery or what. Well, it'll be interesting to watch that when we see that happen. That'll be in a few chapters, and I'll want to look in more detail at the at the exact description of it as we see, because um, of course the obvious, yeah. the most direct. Uh, yeah, just to, uh, go to add in there as well, you know. Along with mockery, because we, we see Morgoth do that quite a bit throughout the book, um, with the idea of the crown as well, you know, the crown with the um, three Silmarilli. You know, that that is definitely an act of defiance. What's also interesting is, um, just to put that out there along with, you know, his idea of mockery, of course, the Iron Crown we'll see later on becomes a tool of his own, uh, you know, his own captivity when it's being to an iron collar around his neck at the end of the... Quenta Silmarillion. So, you know, I was just curious if there was some connection because we also see that later, even on in the, uh, the Lord of the Rings, with the idea of, you know, the two towers, we're not quite sure. So it, it's the beginning of the idea of fortresses. And, you know, of those two, yeah, of those two fortresses, they seem to come in prominence, especially now in the beginning, especially with um, Utomno, you know. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, now I think that what we can see here, there are basically two things that I would say. One is I think that what we should be thinking about in connection with Utumno and then later with Angband um, is not necessarily the two towers of the lamps, but of Teniquitil, the holy mountain that Manway's palace is on. Um, and of course, there's a there's a nifty way in which Utumno is like the mirror reverse, right? Um, you know. Manway has his halls on top of the tallest mountain, um, which oversees the whole world. And then you have uh, Melkor, who digs himself down as, you know, deep, deep, deep under the earth, uh, further down than anybody else goes. So they're they're almost mirror reversed, but Melkor, never being content simply to be the opposite, wants to, to... to be better than everybody on at their own game too. So it would make sense that he would throw up mountains also later on. Um, but as I say, we'll see some more details of that later, but I, th- I do think that we should be seeing that primarily in opposition uh, to Teniquito and to Valinor. Um, yeah. To Valinor there. Let's see. I think, let's see. I think Chris was next with, uh, Chris, you had a question about the stones and waters being hallowed? Yeah. Okay, uh, I'm sorry, I got distracted here. Um, this may be... I, I have not read Morgoth's Ring, but uh, um, the, I was wondering about the idea of Valinor being hallowed and what is meant by hallowed in, in the case that uh, he uses... Um, I think he uses it a number of times. He uses it in, in terms of Valinor itself, as, and then later on the, the Silmarils are, that they uh, they're hallowed by uh, Manwe. And I, I guess I was wondering what that uh, might signify. I, I think 
I remember reading something that was in Morgoth's ring that uh, that uh, Morgoth put his power into everything in in the whole stuff of of uh, of Arda, and so I don't know if this has something to do with that, um, but just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Thank you. That's a great question, um, and I have to say I don't find it especially clear, frankly, exactly what that means. Um, I mean, to hallow something means to make it holy. Um, now, what does holy exactly mean? I think the clearest illustration that we get of this is later on when the Silmarils are hallowed, and as a consequence of their hallowing, um, they burn Melkor when he touches them. I mean, he since he is evil and his intentions in having them is are is his intentions are evil uh it physically hurts him or not physically it anyway it hurts him uh to to hold the silmarils and so that's and that seems to be a direct consequence of the fact that they were hallowed by by Manway and Varda have you read Morgoth's ring and uh, that the the uh, the whole discussion of uh of uh that uh Kind of like Sauron put his power into the One Ring. That's that uh, Melkor put his power into the substance of Arda. And I think this was of late writing. I'm assuming, and I haven't read it directly myself. I've just seen it, the the topic referred to. So I may be a little off base. Yes, yes. Morgoth's Ring. Um, the 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 illusion in the title uh, of the book is that basically all of all of Arda was like Morgoth's ring. Um, so what the ring of power was to Sauron, Middle-earth itself was to, was to, to Morgoth. Um, and the, it is true. That you're context, right. I was wondering whether the hallowing was just getting rid of that influence or fighting against it. Yes. Um, in, in, in some of the writings that we can see in that book, and I would say you were right, Morgoth's Ring is a collection of Silmarillion revisions and commentaries and discussions that Tolkien wrote post-publication of The Lord of the Rings. Okay? So this is now far in advance, and when he is now going back and sort of thinking through some of the some of the complicated issues which have developed themselves a good deal more in the actual working out and writing of the Lord of the Rings. So he's coming back to this stuff at a much later date and rewriting the whole Silmarillion and uh, and working through some of these ideas and separate essays and and little things and stuff. So one of the things that he emphasizes we will be able to see glimpses of it at several points during the Silmarillion, but which he emphasizes a lot more um, in those writings, um, the the writings that we get in Morgoth's Ring. Um, what he emphasizes more is sort of that whole, that sense of the influence of of Morgoth and the shadow, capital S, um, that extends through the world, the evil seeds that Morgoth planted that are always going to bear fruit and, and, and spread. In other words, the whole way in which Arda has been marred. I mean, that, that phrase, which becomes a title, Arda marred, both with capital letters, um, that is used a lot. I was actually, it's funny that you mentioned, I was actually just uh, uh, rereading 
some parts of Morgoth's ring today, actually, because I was reminded recently that I have forgotten a bunch of stuff that was in Morgoth's ring. It's been years since I read that. Um, so I was looking through it again today. And um, yeah, there were several references to, to in this one story I was reading, uh, several references to Artemard and a lot of emphasis on basically the influence of Morgoth extending through the world. And that's why things are corrupt. And by corrupt, they don't just mean evil, but that's why things rot and die. That's why life is more fleeting. Um, that's why everything is sort of less glorious than it could be. And um, the, uh, the the passage I was just rereading this afternoon was the very... Uh, the very remarkable, uh, in fact, really almost incredible um, discussion or debate between Finrod and Andreth. Um, this is a, it's, it's a, again, it's a thing that Tolkien wrote much later on, and he has this conversation between Finrod Felagund, um, the elf whom we'll meet later on in the Silmarillion, and Andreth, who is a wise woman among the early humans that Finrod meets. And they're talking about uh, death and the fate of elves and and men and uh and he speaks very explicitly about Morgoth's influence and why everything fades and why everything is lesser and actually sort of points out that as the men move closer west like as they actually get closer to Valinor and dwell among the elves they start living longer and everything they you know they start they you know they they live up into their 90s and 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 up to 100 and past 100 and this is because the the shadow of Morgoth lies less dark upon the places where the light is and the place where where the you know the Val are still active and the elves are still there the elves you know who came over from Valinor and everything so um so yeah th- that's uh, this is sort of a long Morgoth's ring digression, but um, but basically there there is this sense um, that Morgoth's influence does really extend in some very deep and pernicious ways through. Uh, through the whole world. And I would say that this actually has relevance to two different things that we've talked about already. One is, what are the Valar doing? Are they actually inactive? I think that in seeing how Morgoth affects everything, we can also perhaps be reminded that the other Valar um, also can act in ways which are sort of similarly um, below the sort of radar there, um, that is below the, the... that would not register as an outward action by anyone observing. Um, And the second thing that I would point out, or the second way that it touches on what we've been discussing. Oh, shoot. I forgot what the second thing was. Totally lost my train of thought there. Oh, well. First was the Valor. Let me see if I can recapture it. Yeah, yeah. Let's see. This happens to me all the time. Um... Oh. Me too. That's, uh, you're getting old, Corey. I know. It's so sad. Uh, oh, well. I guess I'll just stick with one thing. <laughs> if, if, I, if I think of it, I'll, 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 I'll come back to it. Uh, well. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> but that's a good question. Um, let's see. I think, uh, Brandon, you had a, a question about language, I think. Um, I was reading today uh, a little essay by um someone was um Tom Shippey, um, and he talks about Tolkien getting a letter from Christopher 
or, or Christopher did a um, a paper on Attila the Hun that he read, and he said that that the whole paper wouldn't have captured his attention if the word Attila had not been here, which also relates to Atta, which relates to father. Um, so I also I just wanted to bring up the fact that as we go through the Cimmerillion, especially now, we're encountering more and more names. And I know that, you know, gogically or whatever, um, we like to kind of like skip over the names, but the the names have, in some cases, have very a lot of importance, especially in Turin Turinbar, like who gives him he gives himself uh, names, his own name, but names that are bestowed upon mountains or lands or to people. Um, I think it's important to kind of have a good balance of that. And I was just wondering if you could comment on that, if you could. Tell me. Yeah, no, I think that that's that is a really good point. I mean, we do always have to keep in mind that Tolkien's own relationship with this story is almost the mirror reverse of what most people's relationship with this story is. Um, that is, most people will skip over the names, just try to pay attention to the story, and try not to pay attention to the names, and and try not to get confused by the by the you know the 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 made-up foreign language. Of course, for Tolkien, it was exactly the opposite. He, his whole interest, primary first interest, was in these languages, that he made up these languages before he invented any stories, and the stories grew out of these languages that he was making up, uh, and as a way to sort of explain and give the historical background to his languages. Um, so absolutely, the names are for him much more important. Um, and you know the the stories themselves are are in many ways an outflowing of the names so so yeah that's that's uh uh something that we always have to keep in mind and now, I don't think that it's true that therefore, in order to understand or enjoy the Silmarillion, we have to try to enter into that because I don't think that we're gonna most of us are really gonna be able to do that um but it does mean that we should pay attention. Now, you mentioned Turin Turambar, and he's a really good example of one trend that we will see. And this is something that should, that our, that, that our attention should really be drawn to, because there will be lots of times when something will happen in the story and a thing will be given a name. Um, you know, that we will see like a, a name will change or a name will be given or something. And this is obviously an important moment. And we should really, it's one of the things that really sort of highlights, um, the importance of the event. But there are lots of times, especially in these early stages where we're just getting all of these, all of this, all of this background stuff. Sometimes one of the things, like I think, for instance, when we're told the names of the trees and we're told, okay, their names are Laurelin and Telperion. And then we're also given, and they're also called, and we're, you know, this, this list of the three other names each that they get in various places. Um, even if we don't, understand those names and we don't, you know, have our, our Kenya dictionary with us, um, to be able to figure out what those names mean. In fact, um, what the etymologies of them are. Nevertheless, at the very least, we should see what this means is you're talking about when, when a figure like that, whether it be the trees or whether it be, um, you know, Valar like Yavanna or, or, or Manwe or Varda, when we're given a figure like that who who has many names and we're told they have all of these different names, this shows us that the, this they're well known among many people and they and th they're going to be you know major figures. This is sort of like I don't know. I I almost want to say 
it creates like a reverb effect. You know, it's like when you when you when you put your voice on reverb to say this is important. Um, that's kind of like the effect that those multiple names have. Uh, you know that the trees are important because we get four names right in a row of what they're called. Um, of course, sometimes we are given a translation of what the name means right away. Um, when he considers that significantly important. Um, but uh, like, for instance, uh, this happens at the very beginning of the Ainulindale. There was Eru, the one. What Eru means, the one. Uh, that's uh, He's translated the name there because it's important to know what his name means. Um, in other words, he's in, in order to convey directly that signal, you know, hi, this is a transcendent monotheistic deity we're talking about here. He makes sure that we know that Eru means the one. Anyway, um, so so there will be normally when when it's really important, he will draw attention to it or even give us a translation. And this, again, coming back to Turin Turambar, we'll see this happening all the time. We almost always get a translation of what Turin's names mean when he changes his own name or when he's given a different name. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the naming of things um, uh, is uh, is is is. is 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 always significant. Again, it doesn't mean, you know, like I always tell people, it doesn't mean you have to memorize all the names. It doesn't mean that you have to keep everybody straight all the time. Um, but, uh, but try to pick up on the kinds of cues that he gives you through names, uh, through the number of names that they have and, and through the changing of names uh, um, and things like that, that, um, you know, he will often be able to sort of create an emphasis there. Uh, yeah. Mike, go ahead. The naming, for me, reading Tolkien, what's even more terrifying than a location or a character who has a, or that has an evil name is a location or character that's lost or forgotten its name. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the... That is that is the worst fate uh, to, to to either be unnamed... And, and also, actually, to, to be unnamed is like the great insult. Um, that's why you remember in the Lord of the Rings in Gondor, they do not name, uh, the dark Lord, you know, he whom we do not name. Um, and that's designed not just to be, um, you know, it, in Harry Potter, when they don't name Voldemort, it's because they're afraid of him. It's actually a sign of almost of submission, you know, that they don't, they don't name him because they don't want to draw his attention to them. But uh, in Gondor, it's an act of defiance. Like, we, we, you, you don't rate a name <laughs> for us. Um, so, I mean, it's not that names don't have power as... Uh, um Let's see. Uh, uh, yeah, Brandon, you just mentioned in the chat that you know Gandalf talks talks to Frodo about not wanting to talk about these things, not wanting to darken the the bright day of the Shire with uh, with with these different things. It's certainly true that this stuff has power. Again, you think of the effect that just Gandalf's use of the black speech has in Rivendell. Um, so there is a there there is an influence, um, but uh, but still. To, to to refuse even to recognize Sauron's name. I think that is designed to be to be an insult. And uh it, Dave is laughing at me because I, I, I actually explicitly made the implicit Harry Potter reference. But you have to. I mean the whole he who must not be named thing is almost exactly cribbed from Tolkien. So, you know, like I can't I can't bring that up and then not go there, you know. Um 
But uh, anyway, uh, Dave, you, I, I think uh, we're getting close to the end of our time here. So, uh, Dave, why don't we come back to your uh, to your human free will and death question? Okay. Um, well, I just I feel like we would be remiss if we had a discussion about Tolkien that didn't revolve around death, since we know that's what it's all about, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, I. Yeah. Well, I just um, – this is the this is the first mention I think – well, maybe not. I guess they did mention men earlier. But um, this is the first time we really get into um, the Iluvatar's strange gift to men, um, namely – well, I guess it's twofold. It's death, and then there's also this um, very unexplained and very mysterious freedom to act beyond the music, whatever that means. Um, and I was wondering what your thoughts are. Um, in particular, what what is that like? What does it mean for them to have a freedom to act beyond the music? Does that I mean does that mean that they're running around and nobody knows what they're going to do, or is that specifically talking about the fact that when they die, they they go, they the elves know not whither? Um, and then also, what's the relationship between this their freedom? And the fact that they die, because he says um, that that one with um, their freedom, their that that gift is the fact that they die. So I'm wondering how those two things are related. Yeah, no, I think that that this is a really good question, of course. And um, I think, okay, let's see. As usual, Dave, you've asked like three or four questions, which I'm trying to keep straight now. <laughs> but let's see. You <laughs> sorry. You uh, let's do the the freedom question first. You're saying does 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 the fact that they're free, that, you know, that they they can act outside the music, which is as fate to all things else, um, if that means that they're what they're what they do is unknown, that seems to be explicitly true. Um, remember the explicit reference back in the Aino Windowway to the fact that the vision was taken away before the fulfillment of the dominion of men, um, and I, th- 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 we're told that men are often especially men, more so than elves. The children of Iluvatar as a whole, but speci- but especially men, are kind of a mystery to the Valar. Um, so they are not... They, they don't seem to, to really get it. They're not part of their conception of the music. Um, now, does this mean that men are free from... Uh, are, are free from the, you know, the plans of Iluvatar? Clearly not, but they are not under the the. They're not under the dominion of the Valar. the The, the relationship between the Valar and the children of Iluvatar um, is very different from, especially. I mean, we get the 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 relation between um, the Valar and the rest of the world. That is between the uh, the like the the material world. You think of, you know, like Aule and his dominion and, you know, each of them have their own sort of special domains. Well, the children of Iluvatar aren't anybody's domain. I mean, they don't relate to them that way, but they um, – and they don't – and we're told that they don't even necessarily really understand them. This is especially true of men. Um, so on the one hand, it is, I think, talking about a limitation of knowledge – but as far as their freedom, I, the passage that you 
uh, partially quoted there, Davis. I think uh, to me the most interesting sentence in this whole business about freedom and death is the explicit connection that Tolkien makes between them. It is one with this gift of freedom that the children of men dwell only a short space in the world alive and are not bound to it and depart soon whither the elves know not. Uh, and I think the important thing there is that he's pointing to the fact that human beings, they live in the world, they are born in the world and they live in the world, but they are not ultimately of the world. This is not their home. This is not their destiny. Their destiny is outside the world. And when they are here, um, this is why they are called the guests or the strangers, right? That doesn't mean like, oh, hey, you know, the elves, uh, the elves are the firstborn and they're the secondborn. So they're like, hey, so you guys are, you know, we own the world and you guys are living in our place. It's not, it, it, that's not what it means. What it means is they don't, they, clearly they don't belong here. They're not at rest here. Elves are at rest in the world. This is their place. They are bound to it, and its life is theirs. That's not true of humans. Wherever their home is, it's somewhere else, but it isn't here. And so that's, I think, the important connection that he makes between the free will and death. Um, to say that you know they are free because, in some sense, they are more closely tied to Iluvatar himself. Not just in the sense that they're children of Iluvatar, the elves are in that way also, but because um, you know they have the they. They have this gift of freedom. Their home is not here. Um, so, I mean, those two things, those two things are intricately tied. The gift of death, that is the departure from the world to return, not just to go, but to return uh, to, well, where the elves don't know, but sort of suggested to, uh, or back to a union with Iluvatar. Um, that's... You know, that's why they have this, you know, the, the, so their freedom is also a manifestation of that same, that same thing. And this is why, and this is what, uh, you know, what Alison very, Alison Fishmock very rightly emphasized uh, in her thesis and in the, the, in the discussion that uh, I just broadcast that she and I had, it's important all through the Silmarillion, it is emphasized death is not a bad thing. You know, the, the, the lot of mortals is not terrible. Um, that is, it's not second rate compared to the elves. They have a different destiny, but it is not a lesser destiny. And we can clearly see that, I think, emphasized here in this moment. Yeah, Dave, go ahead. Um, well, I've, I, the, the, the part that I can't figure out is, it, to the extent that they're free, does that mean that essentially the music doesn't cover them? <laughs> To, to put it in a very crude and overly simplistic way, does it mean that that um, I mean, because to some extent, especially with the the wording where it talks about fate, um, it, it, to some extent, the Valor have a pretty good idea of what's going on because they've sort of seen it already because they witnessed the unfolding of the music when it was just music and not a physical reality or whatever. But um, does that, to the extent that men are free, does that mean that that they're not part of the music or the music sort of um, uh, doesn't cover them or is this the music that Iluvatar made by himself and so the Valar you know aren't familiar with it I mean if when we go back to the sort of the music imagery how, how, how does the freedom of men fit into that 
Yeah, that's a really good question. I, the way that I would express it would be that they, rather than being parts of the, I mean, we think of the way that the vision related to the, the music, you know, we had the music and then we had the vision and then we had the actual creation of Iluvatar and then the Valar come into the world and find that it was only on point to begin and they had to actually enact the history that was foresung in the, in the music. So, you know, you have this idea of the, you know, the history and the world and the shape of things, which is being formed by the music. It is as fate to the rest of the world, um, but it is not as fate to men. So the, the, the actions of, of humans and the choices of humans are not predetermined or sort of directly influenced in that way by the music. Rather, I think that what we're supposed to imagine is essentially the Ainur over here and the men over here, both of whom are creatures of Iluvatar, both of whom have free will and whose choices act together in order to enact this larger story, which is outside of the music. And remember, we get kind of glimpses of the fact that the music itself isn't the whole show, just by the fa- by the way in which Iluvatar is interacting with it in the first place, and both in his sort of conducting and raising his hands and things, but even just his, his, his propounding of the theme to them uh, in the first place. Um, so... So I, we can see that that's not the entire story that there is to be told. So you've got the story that the Ainur are telling um, in the music that that was first foresung in the music and then is now being worked out. And then you have, you know, if you want to sort of look at it that way to continue the, the metaphor, this sort of separate music that the men are creating um, collectively through their through through their actions. So I think we're supposed to sort of see the music, uh, namely the, the free choices of the Valar and the, the, and what the men do as kind of operating on the same level in that way. So that's the sense in which men are outside the music. Huh, so, so in that sense, I mean, to some extent they, they have almost a special status above the elves because the, the elves are in no way on that level. They're not. They're, there's no part of what's going on with them that's sort of outside the music. Or is that wrong? Are well, they, see, that's a thorny topic. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Yeah, it's tricky. It's tricky because, um, well, this has actually spawned a whole lot of debate. There are a bunch of people who will debate this question. Essentially, based on this passage, the question, do elves have free will? then raises itself, right? Because you've got all this emphasis on the freedom, the the peculiar freedom that men have, but this isn't said of the, of the elves. And of course, the way that the elves are bound to Arda, does that mean that the Valar who are also bound to Arda and who are, who are determining Arda, therefore also determine the elves? Um, there's certainly nothing said about elvish free will here. I myself, uh, am in the pro-Elven free will camp. And the reason, there are two reasons that I am in the pro-Elven free will camp. One is that I think trumping the, and any specific reference um, to free will by the elves is simply the, their status as children of Iluvatar. Um, so clearly we have sort of a priori the Ainur, the elves, and the humans, and, you know, and the men are all of them 
on this on in one sense on the same level there are obviously there are differences between them and the Ainur are 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 greater and and more powerful and and above the rest of them but they're all on the same level in the sense that they are all directly the creatures of Iluvatar so in in a sense they're they're siblings the Valar are by far the you know the big siblings but uh but but they're still all siblings so i think that to say that two of those three siblings have free will and one are just predetermined and like, you know, they're just working out their orders and don't have any free will. It doesn't really make any sense. It doesn't really, I don't think that that makes sense. And I don't think that that really fits. And the second thing is throughout the rest of the Silmarillion, it's sure going to look like people have free will. In fact, we will see, you know, in a smaller scale, the, whole fall of Melkor being worked out again uh, on the elven level. And that, again, very firmly suggests that they have free will, as, of course, it was the abuse of his own free will that led Melkor to do what he did. So I think that um, it's really hard for me to understand how we could supposed to be how we're supposed to be thinking about the elves if they don't have free will. Um, But in this passage, I mean, I can certainly see how that question comes up as a consequence of this passage, because it doesn't say anything about the free will of the elves here. Um, but I find it almost impossible to believe that they don't have free will. Um, anyway, uh, Jordan, you wanted to reply? Uh, yeah, I actually, not exactly on the free will aspect of it, but also the, the more the gift aspect. Um, my question is, it says that there, the men will join... The, in the second music of the Ainur, when the world is destroyed, basically. And I'm curious as to really what this means at all. Uh, what is the second music of the Ainur? Yeah, yeah. That is essentially seems to be pointing to the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. Um, uh, that is, uh, I'm alluding now to the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. Um, that... It was actually the other thing that I thank you for bringing it up. It's the other thing I wanted to come back to um, in talking about the relationship between humans and the music. Um, So I think I can kind of talk about both of those at once. Um, Let's see. Yeah, this is at the very bottom of page 15, at the very bottom of the first page of the Aino Lindelay. After the description, or at the beginning of the description of the music, um, never since have the Ainur made any music like to this music, though it has been said, so this is a prediction, a future prediction we're talking about, that a greater still shall be made before Iluvatar by the choirs of the Ainur and the children of Iluvatar after the end of days. Then the themes of Iluvatar shall be played aright and take being in the moment of their utterance, for all shall then understand fully his intent in their part, and each shall know the comprehension of each, and Iluvatar shall give to their thoughts the secret fire being well pleased. So this is the moment of perfection. This is when creation itself will be remade and, and be perfected. This is clearly beyond the end of days. This is after the, 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 the end of Arda. But again, here you see creation perfected comes when the choirs of the Ainur and the elves and the men are all together. And they're all of them contributing. Um, the music of the Ainur is only partial because it's because they're only part of the show. You don't have the choir of the children there. Um, and so I think that, I think that that's, um, I think that that's something 
that is really it's 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 really kind of a glimpse into how this is supposed to harmonize will literally harmonize it eventually will literally harmonize um and will be this great music so when we see the will of the valar and the 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 the, the conception of the valar both the the creative impulse of the Valar in making the world and the actions that they're trying to perform in the world and, and to protect the world and to build the world um, and beyond to serve it. And then the choices and actions of all of the elves and the, all of the men, and then all of these are going to come together ultimately to make the great music. And this is going to be the ultimate expression of Iluvatar's plan for the world. Um, but that's going to be... I alluded before to that expression, Arda Mard, that Tolkien keeps using, and especially in the later versions, like in the Morgoth Ring stuff, the post-Lord of the Rings Silmarillion versions. Um, he talks about Arda Mard um, in that one, that debate with Andreth and Finrod. Um, Finrod talks about not only Arda Mard, but he looks forward to Arda Healed and speculates that Arda Healed is actually going to be Arda Remade. And that does seem to be what uh, what Tolkien is looking towards there. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's definitely what he's alluding to. Mike, go ahead. Interesting part is, you know, clearly he says men are going to have free will. For me, the interesting question is, to what end? And I, I'm glad that you were touching on that. For me, it comes through in the, the third uh, to final paragraph, the last sentence. And of their operation, everything should be in form indeed completed and the world fulfilled unto the last and smallest. The first time I read that, that kind of slipped by me. And I think the fact that he doesn't capitalize, um, you know, the, the world fulfilled, capital T-W-F, uh, can, you can sort of miss that, but... I think in that last part of that sentence, that's another clue in in, in terms of what, what's the point of the free will. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that that's. Uh... Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I agree. I mean, this is the the will of the Ainur is not complete. Part of the reason that it is frustrated is that they're not. They are not the whole show. Just as each of the Ainur only perceives the part of the mind of Iluvatar from which it comes, right? And, you know, and re remember part of that story about the final great music is that each shall comprehend, uh, each, you know, everyone, everyone's understanding will be perfect when all are brought together and unified. All will understand, all will know, even as they are known. And, um, and everything will work out. So yeah, things are not working out the way that the Ainur want them to now. Well, because, of course, they don't understand <laughs> because there are things beyond their own understanding at work here, especially the children of Iluvatar. There are these other voices. There are these whole other choirs who haven't joined in yet. Um, but uh, anyway, so I think there's a lot more that could be said about this. And and I would um, I would just sort of take this final moment to give a to give a plug. I went back to. Um, I went back to this essay in Morgoth's Ring, um, the debate of Finrod uh, and Andreth. The title of it in Morgoth's Ring is is all in uh, in Elvish. That is, Athrabeth Finrod uh, Andreth, and uh, that is a fantastic 
essay. I mean, I just I, I reread that today for the first time in years. I had forgotten completely about it. I went back to it because uh, I got an email from somebody who, after listening to my discussion, um, both with Dave in the Colin session and with Allison, um, w- wrote to me in shock that I hadn't alluded to this essay, which I because I had just forgotten about it. It's been so long since I'd read it, and I just reread it today and was utterly blown away by this. Um, it was amazing. Um, so I would just sort of end with a, a recommendation. Anyone who can get your hands on a copy of Morgoth's read, Ring, read this. It is part four. Um, it is absolutely fantastic. So um, anyway, that is my... Uh, that is my final, my final recommendation uh, tonight. I think we should, uh, I think we should close up shop here for tonight. Um, if you have any sort of lingering questions or anything from tonight, feel free, free to bring them in next week. Next week we're looking at Aule and Yavanna, so that is one of the shorter chapters um, in uh, the book. Though I suspect we'll still find plenty to talk about anyhow. But um, thanks uh, for the discussion tonight. That was fun. And I think uh, if anyone, uh, so yeah, I should I should probably go, but I will um, send around an email to confirm. But I'm pretty sure we're all set for next week, so we'll just plan next week this time. <laughs> Dave has been agitating for me to turn everyone's mic on and have everyone like yell and chatter at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> for weeks now <laughs> so one of the one of these days dave i'm just gonna do it uh, <laughs> and now everybody's raising their hand okay gotta go gotta go chaos next week as i recall we do not in fact fall into chaos in session number four so don't consider that a promise our next session will be focused on that very short but remarkably rich chapter on aule and yavana so prepare yourself for a lot of discussion of ents and dwarves Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.